0: Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this is our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from the EthicalPanda.com,
1: and I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast.
0: And today we're talking about minute 29, which begins with Thor yelling at his dad and ends with Odin bringing down the hammer on Thor. Sorry, I had to. Uh, And uh, today we've got a very special guest. Something I've been excited about for a while. Joining us on the show today, we have a a Shakespearean guest here who's going to really help us touch on all the royal family drama in this minute. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Jeff Wilson from the Harvard College Writing Program. Uh, Jeff, I'm so glad you're with us. Why did you pick this? I know you wanted this one particular minute. Why did you pick this minute?
2: Yeah, thanks, uh, first of all, so much for having me. Uh, Thor is my nine-year-old daughter's favorite uh, Avenger, and so I, I jumped at the chance. Nice. I had to get on here. Nice. Um, you know, kind of in- inverting the uh, the theme of Thor a little bit. This is a parent looking for acceptance from his daughter and to be... To be- <laughs> um, I
1: like so like this
2: it. this moment this is the moment right when Odin banishes Thor and says you're not worthy it's sort of the the conceptual center of the film and and so much kind of refers to this moment or descends from this moment in, in a, a number of really fascinating ways both in terms of kind of plot and theme so with Lot, mm. you get this, this kind of basic Odysseus story in Thor right of uh, a guy trying to get back home and with the themes you get the tension between father and son plus the question of how to wield power responsibly. But for me uh, what's most fascinating about this moment as, as a Shakespeare scholar is that in the scene you have a veteran Shakespearean actor Anthony Hopkins absolutely crushing the scene that he shares with a Hollywood celebrity uh, that is then uh, overheard and reacted to by a rising Shakespearean star, Tom Hiddleston, and directed by the most important Shakespearean filmmaker of the past 60 years, Kenneth Branagh. So it, it seems like this minute just uh, sort of so much is centered around this for the entire film and then and, and the way that the movie was made and the way that it was made. So looking forward to chatting with you about it.
0: Awesome, awesome. So much to talk about. We'll get right back to that in just one moment.
1: We have our Season 4 artwork up on t-shirts, mugs, pillows, all sorts of stuff over in our merch store. If you're looking to support the show and, you know, kind of flash some of the swag that we have, check out the merch store at truestory.fm slash marvelmovieminute and just click on Merch.
0: Jeff, I love where you started talking about this minute. I want to kind of uh, step back to just kind of look at the bigger picture for one second. Tell us about how you sort of came to this movie. Had you heard that, like, had someone mentioned to you that Branna had talked about, like, wanting to make this movie because of the Shakespearean themes? Did you, like, kind of go into it blind? Um, for you, as someone who really knows Branna and, and Shakespeare, what was your thought when you heard this, like, Shakespearean legend in the last, like you said, the last 60 years was making a comic book movie.
2: Right. Yeah. So, you know, kind of word in, in Shakespeare's world was that Kenneth Branagh is going to direct a major Hollywood blockbuster. And we all kind of raise our eyebrows at that a little bit. And then he says, I'm doing it because it's the story of Prince Hal from the first part of, of Henry the fourth. And then we all say, okay, that kind of makes sense because, Kenneth Branagh had his big moment in in 1989 with the film Henry V, which was kind of the very first of these sort of big Hollywood Shakespeare blockbusters that became prominent in the 1990s. And so he's got a really close connection to that character. And then to hear him say that this story from Norse mythology that they're now going to make into a, a Hollywood popcorn movie, um, that he's, you know, doing it for Shakespearean reasons was was fascinating to hear. And then you see sort of Branagh's network where he he brings in Anthony Hopkins, who I think just signed on to do the film, knowing nothing about the story of Thor, but knowing <laughs> Kenneth Branagh and really liking him as a director. Right. And Branagh brings along Tom Hiddleston, who he'd worked with. Um, on the TV series Wallander, but but Tom Hiddleston's, of course, also a, a Shakespearean actor. He'd just come off of Othello and and playing, you know, a character like Cassio. He'd played a, a really um, mm-hmm. celebrated Coriolanus. And so you've got these Shakespearean actors and directors who are bringing that um, language and that that way of storytelling to this major Hollywood blockbuster. And and we sort of maybe it was it was rubberneck train wreck style, but we had to to see just how is this (laughs) going (laughs) to (laughs) work?
0: What was your feeling when you did get to see it? Did you kind of walk away going, Ken, what in the world were you thinking? Or did you sort of go, oh, okay, yeah, I, I get what you meant. Marvel
2: movies are the one thing that my wife and I can agree upon in terms of entertainment that we choose. And and I think the the reason that I like them is because they're exploring these big, you know, conceptual themes and, and uh they're doing it sort of interlacing comedy and tragedy. And and yeah, I, I think I, I saw it and and weirdly kind of works. It it works that yeah. to to um Kind of make a Shakespearean sensibility a little bit more uh, accessible on a, a major film screen, and then also to kind of bring some of those uh, storytelling methods to to a Hollywood blockbuster that we sort of uh, experience a lot with within Shakespeare world. You know, I, I hear that on on the set, the the actors and the directors were sort of. They would talk in Shakespearean shorthand back and forth. That that they would say, you know, what what if we did a little uh, Edmund and King Lear in this moment? And then all the Shakespeareans sort of understand what that means.
0: <laughs> oh, that's wonderful! I love that it, it really was going. It wasn't just sort of in Branagh's head, but he was actually bringing it to the actors. And a few non-Shakespearean folks on stage must have been very frustrated with that process. <laughs> but. <laughs>
1: well what I what I what I love about that idea is that uh I mean Shakespeare really was kind of the the stories of the people it wasn't some like high English royal sort of storytelling it was something that uh was kind of for everybody for those who aren't as familiar with Shakespeare can you just explain when you when well, you kind of referenced how Rana was coming to this saying that I'm gonna it's kind of the story of Prince Hal can you just give a a taste of what that what that story is and how it might fit into kind of what he was seeing with this one?
2: The story of Prince Hal comes in what's called Shakespeare's second tetralogy. So a tetralogy is a group of four plays. So you can think of the the Star Wars trilogy, right? And there's sort of the first trilogy and the second trilogy. Well, Shakespeare, of course, has to outdo Star Wars and he does sets of four plays. (laughs) So early in the 1590s, uh, Shakespeare writes what's called his first tetralogy, And that's sort of the story of what's called the Wars of the Roses, this bloody English Civil War that culminates in Richard III, who Shakespeare kind of presents as this hilarious yet also really deplorable villain. And then Shakespeare ends that story in the mid 1590s. And then in true Star Wars fashion, he says, I want to tell the prequel to that story. So let's flash back to what happened (laughs) in the lead up to this set of four plays that I've already told. And then he writes what's called his, his second tetralogy, his second set of uh, four plays. And those plays are Richard the second, the first and the second part of Henry the fourth, and then Henry the fifth. He writes these in the second half of the 1590s. So. Uh, Richard II is the story of this fellow named Henry Bolingbroke, uh, kind of overthrowing King Richard II, a divinely appointed king, and uh, Bolingbroke is, just to sort of uh, contextualize things, he's going to kind of go on to be the the Odin figure in the story. So, in the first part of Henry IV, what happens is that this noble and, and warlike King Henry IV, he's recently deposed Richard II. Uh, he's taken the English throne for himself, but he's disappointed in this desolate son. He has the heir to the crown, who spends all of his time drinking in the pubs in Eastcheap. And so, the this, this son, Prince Hal, the person who will eventually go on to become Henry V, at the end of the second scene, he has this amazing soliloquy where he says... I know I'm wasting my life away in the pubs and and with these drinking buddies of mine, but I'm going to go on to do great things. Just you wait and see. And so we have that kind of contextualization. Mm -hmm. This is going to be an an overcoming adversity story or, you know, a coming out of the shadows uh, rags to riches type story. So we get that framing, but then Hal kind of spends all of his time with his favorite drinking buddy, the Jolly Knight, Sir John Falstaff. He's a, a, a Volstag figure for Thor fans. Mm. Hal says once he becomes king, he's going to reject Falstaff. He's going to reject his old lifestyle. The young Hal and some of his friends then end up joining the the civil war that's going on in uh, England, and then at what's called the Battle of Shrewsbury, Hal, who's now 17 years old, fights heroically, saves his father's life, helps win the war against these rebels. Henry IV, our Odin figure, later dies, so then at the age of 27, Prince Hal becomes King Henry V, and at his coronation, Mm. Henry V does indeed reject Falstaff, his former friend, only two years later then, at the age of 29, Henry V wins the, the famous victory at the, the Battle of Agincourt, where England reclaims these lands that had previously been lost in France. Uh, then he marries Catherine of Valois and settles down to rule over a time of kind of peace and prosperity in England. Um, so when he dies at the young age of 36, Henry V is sort of celebrated oh, in England wow. as this national hero.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: I love getting all that context, especially because what we've been talking about as we watch this Thor movie, it's really interesting, especially because now we've seen things like Ragnarok and Avengers. But also, you know, we know that Thor goes on to become this epic war leader, and uh, of this wonderful way. And for me, you say Henry V, and I just immediately think of the St. Crispin's Day speech. Which I'm a total pacifist. You tell me, you know, all the nobles asleep in their beds will wish they were here with us. I'm like, yeah, I'd go to fight with you, Prince Hal. So I, <laughs> I love how much there really is—not just in this movie, but the Thor and the Prince Hal story are such great mirrors of each other.
2: Yeah, and apparently Branagh gave uh, Chris Hemsworth the, the St. Crispin's Day speech at one point when they were rehearsing, and said, "Come, come to set tomorrow and, and be able to deliver this." And c- could you imagine being Chris Hemsworth wow, kind of wow. cast in this movie as, as a sort of amazingly good looking, super well built Hollywood t- style actor, and being told, uh, "Come, come and do the speech from from Shakespeare." Oh, and Anthony Hopkins and Tom Hiddleston will also be there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. A little
1: pressure, just a bit.
0: (laughs) You kind of hope at some point they do get uh, Chris onto a stage, because you mentioned Tom Hiddleston in Othello, and I I guess especially how young he would be, Cassio makes sense, but just given the evil he plays, I immediately started thinking, I now need to see him as Iago one day, because he'd be so perfect for that. Oh, that would um, be fun. Well, we are supposed to be talking about the specific minute, uh, so let's let's actually get into that, but I, I, I sort of warned Andy that I was like, no, let's, let's just go deep on this, yeah. and, and so it starts with like the two of them yelling at each other, and um, and especially you know this is when like a Thor calls him and says you're an old man and a fool, and I just and then look at these great reaction shots. It just feels like there's so much resentment that it's like both of these have been holding on to what they've said for so long, and they're finally saying it now. They're like oh my god, it's out in the air. What what do you kind of, what goes through your mind as you're watching the two of them react to what they've just, first as they say it, but then as they kind of react to what they've just said? A
2: few things. So, so first of all, we've got, you know, Thor is a, um, the, the key word is unworthy in the scene, right? But right. Thor is an unworthy yeah. son in a completely different way than Prince Hal is an unworthy son. Prince Hal is kind of Drinking in the pubs and and not living leading up to or living up to the, the the royal nobility that his father thinks he should have. Actually, Thor is exactly the kind of son that King Henry the would have loved to have had. He's he's a guy who wants to be out there on the <laughs> battlefield, but in Thor, Odin's uh, point is that you're reckless, you're young, you're impetuous, you're not thinking about qualities of leadership to, you know, um, prudently manage a government. And instead, you just want to go out and, and go to war with everyone and prove your honor, prove your toughness out there. So, both Prince Hal and Thor are unworthy, but in, in completely different ways. And that's that's a really fascinating dynamic. Yeah, as you say in that scene, you know, just uh, apparently uh, Ken Branagh uh, told anthony hopkins to improvise some lines on that and that uh, tom hiddleston is is doing some reaction shots in this minute that we're talking about and chris hemsworth is having some dialogue back and forth but it's fascinating to see right that that you've got these shakespearean actors that are and then the reason that it's important that they're Shakespeare because you know you think about a Shakespeare play, right? We're living in the 21st century. None of us have ever experienced mm-hmm. medieval royalty. We don't really have any connection to that world. But to be a good Shakespearean actor, you have to be able to convincingly deliver lines in that sort of heightened style in, in the way that a right. Thor speaks, right? In the way that Anthony Hopkins as, as Odin speaks. And they're able to do that in that scene. And it, it feels convincing, even though we're in this make-believe world of Asgard, which is, you know, kind of a... a a little bit of a, a funhouse mirror reflection of England. You can even hear the, the name England and the name Asgard. Uh, and mm-hmm. that, that to be able to, to deliver those lines plausibly is sort of where the, the Shakespearean training, especially for Anthony Hopkins in this scene, kind of comes through.
1: Well, and it really, I mean, there's, there's a sense of... There will be as he continues speaking, but there's a sense of wisdom that he also has. Because clearly they're mad at each other. I mean, Thor is yelling at at Dad. Dad's yelling at Thor. You're vain, greedy, cruel boy. uh, All of which makes sense. And then when Thor says, and you're an old man and a fool, I, I love how Odin kind of pivots. And that's like that moment of wisdom and reflection that he has where he's like, yes. And he pauses, I was a fool to think you're ready. I love how he kind of takes that moment. And it makes me think like what was what was his strategy at this point was he just bringing thor back and was he going to punish him in some capacity but not necessarily casting him out was was thor's reaction here so strong and so angry and and so caustic with his father that that's kind of what pushes odin to his decision here i I, i'm not sure what do you what do you think
2: there's that line earlier in the film where odin says a wise king never seeks out war so that that point you make about Mm -hmm. kind of wisdom and and i mean this is also sort of basic spider-man stuff right with great power comes great responsibility and the, the, sure. the royals in Asgard have all of this power, and the big question of this this film Thor is how do you wield power responsibly? That's also the big question of kind of superhero genre films in general. Is got folks who right. have a lot of power. What do you do with that power? In um, mm-hmm. The early modern age, this is sort of addressed through what's what's called the mirror for magistrates genre, which the mirror for magistrates was kind of education of young princes. What, what does a young prince need to do? What does he need to know in order to grow into the person who might take over uh, as, a, as a king one day? Uh, and, and that's basically the story that we get in in Thor is that you have someone who's not quite ready to wield power has to go through a learning experience and then becomes the the person who is you know worthy of that power as it were
1: then it very much fits uh you know screenwriting one oh one right you know you have you have a character who's got a flaw and you have this character arc and and over the course of the story they work to kind of find a way to uh, you know change so that they can get right. past that flaw and you know, have the uh, resolution you're looking for.
0: And, and I love knowing that that's a, that's a genre because one thing we'll probably talk about in the next minute is um, when Odin casts him out, he doesn't say, you have to prove you're worthy. He just says, you know, don't let the door hit, your, hit you on the way out. And I remember thinking, I I didn't know at that time, like, is this a test or is this him saying... And you might never come back. So I, I don't know how much Bran had that in thought, but knowing that there's this kind of whole genre where it always is the test like that uh, really helps kind of put it in context.
2: Yeah. Uh, Matthew, you know, right? You know at the start of Thor how this is going to work out. <laughs>
0: I mean, I know that. It's a question of like, what does Odin know? You know, like is Odin... Uh, and we'll get into that for sure. And and, and sticking to Odin's reaction there for a second, as, as you pointed out, Andy, you know, he kind of puts his head down and he looks... When Thor says the thing he does, he looks hurt, you know, but not like Thor's hurt him as much as he's just like now he's fully realizing what he's not wanted to see until now, which, by the way, you were talking before about how Shakespearean actors have to make this believable while also, you know conveying all of this and to me that's one of the beauties of this is like you know I've never been in English Lord I've never been a space god fighting the frost giants I have disappointed my father though you know and like that scene is so and I've been mad at my father that scene is so recognizable but but I'm wondering like to me what I got out of that reaction from Odin is not only is he like hit by it but at some point, he's also kind of wondering, is this my fault? You know, like, anytime a parent sees a child going so far off the rails, on some level, like because Odin's talking about how he, I have trained you, do you get that same sense that in some level he's like, I- I've, I've coddled this kid too much, I've spoiled him too much, I need to now change dramatically? A little bit.
2: I think... For me, Anthony Hopkins, I know, kind of approached Odin this moment in particular as kind of a King Lear moment, which is Mm in King Lear, um, he banishes his daughter Cordelia when she doesn't perform her love for him in a a way that will satisfy him. And so I think Anthony Hopkins is... is, um, you know, it's, 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 as you say, it's a really relatable moment, even though the circumstances that produced it are completely hocus pocus. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's a, a really kind of speaking now as a father, this moment where you love this person, um, but you're mixed up with anger, you're mixed up with disappointment, you're mixed up with uh, frustration. You feel like there are obligations that you have to your job with the state at the same time as your, your child who you've reared and spent every day with. And so when Lear banishes Cordelia, it's pretty clear that that we're meant to critique Lear in that moment. And I think uh, Anthony Hopkins sort of, you know, makes himself available for critique in that moment of this. This might be an overreaction.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a great way to put it. And so so we get that reaction. And then for a moment, Loki steps in and he try he just says father and he gets shouted down. What is think Loki <laughs> does thinking? Does he ever? <laughs> what what is Loki thinking in this moment? Is he actually up concerned? Is does he just know like that if he just he wants to make his father just a little bit angrier because he loves how this is playing out? What what do you get from Loki in that moment?
2: Yeah, Loki's, you know, a fascinating mix. There's there's we talked about Falstaff. There's some elements of Falstaff and uh, Loki as kind of the god of mischief and lies. But there's, there's much more going back to King Lear, elements of Edmund, who in King Lear is the illegitimate son of one of the, the uh, advisors to the king and um, creates this plot to um, make uh, the Earl of Gloucester, who's his father, suspicious of the legitimate son, son Edgar. Um, that's where Loki's at kind of in this moment is he sees an opening, right? Is is that right. he, he sort of, um, he genuinely loves his brother, he has a relationship with him, but he's also got his own things going on in terms of his own ambition, and he's always been a little bit lesser than he feels like for his entire life. And, and he's sort of, you know, it, it, uh, Tom Hiddleston's reaction shots in this scene are amazing. You, you see him sort of doing the, the, you know, in-person public performance of trying to support his brother and trying to maybe uh, oppose his father a little bit at the same time as he's starting to realize how he might game this out.
0: Right.
1: Well that's what I find so interesting about all of it. like rewatching this and just thinking about like how how are these machinations playing out as per what Loki had been trying? I, I kind of don't think he was expecting it to get to a point where they ended up in Jotunheim. I think that he was hoping that Odin would have stopped them beforehand and still gotten Thor in trouble. But he went along with it, and it played out. They obviously didn't die. They made it out of there just in the nick of time. But now, like I, I again, I don't think that he was thinking that Thor would get cast out through this whole thing. But I can't help but think... He's probably like, "Wow, okay, this is going almost better than I had planned," and and that's what I find so interesting about revisiting the film and looking at Loki and thinking about uh, all of this stuff that he has set in motion, uh, just so he can kind of get this end game of of being the one who does get to ascend to the throne.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating, right? To to go back and watch the first Thor in a post Loki series world, right? right. Yes. And, and not only fascinating because now Tom Hiddleston is, is sort of beefed up a little bit, uh, whereas in Thor, he very purposely kind of thinned down and he wanted to have this lean and, and hungry look. And he was taking that from Shakespeare's Cassius um, and and to, to sort of look back. And, and this is kind of the, the fun of it. Right. To To imagine kind of what's going on now that we know what's happened in the future. And that's not something that's very true to the kind of Shakespeare world as well. These plays are from 400 years ago. Uh, events have happened in the past 400 years that We can't. We unavoidably have to look back through that lens to to interpret these stories. Mm -hmm. Whether it's looking at Shylock through the perspective of the Holocaust, or it's looking at you know the Tempest through the perspective of colonialism, just sort of these later events that happen that influence the way we look back at the stories that maybe we would have read differently previously.
0: When I mentioned Iago, that's kind of what I think of as Loki. Just in that like the patience and the like the watching and the the gentle whispering in Thor's ear. But I think you're helping me see something different, which is that where Iago is just really this, like, creature of pure malice in some ways. Like, I mean, he's got his reasons. Loki is very torn here, I think, because I, I think you're right, Andy. I think this may be the kind of thing where, like, you're hoping, you know, your sibling gets sent to bed without dessert and instead your sibling's getting thrown out in the street, you know, and you're sort of like, well, this is more than I thought, but also – I could get his room, you know, like it's a great opportunity for <laughs> yeah. you. And I, I think it's such a, a tribute to Hiddleston's acting that without saying a word, just that one word father, he's able to convey so much emotion through this whole scene.
2: Yeah. And, and if Shakespeare had written this scene, what would have happened is that Tom Hiddleston would have turned to the camera, made eye contact with the audience and said, now I've got them. Now I'm going to be able to carry out my evil ruse. That's how Shakespeare writes that scene. But, you know, in this sort of naturalized uh, 21st century version, uh, we get really just reaction shots. I think you mentioned maybe one word from Loki in the scene, right? And so we're able to kind of project onto him what may or may not be happening based on uh, interpretation, based on things that we later find out.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, I, I love those moments when they happen in some Shakespeare plays, but it, I would hate it here because what I love so much is the mystery. You know, you don't actually know what Loki is thinking, and it's – you kind of have to try and guess. And I think on some level, Loki may not know what he's thinking. Now we get to that moment we talked about where, you know, Odin is saying you are unworthy, and, he, you know, he goes into this great speech about all the things you're unworthy about. And it's funny because this minute specifically ends with him saying you are unworthy, i kind of wish it just ended there but in the next minute we find out it is one more you know you're unworthy of this but talk about like and and as he's saying that you know he's like ripping off the parts of his uh outfit you know his battle armor his cape what what's going on there in terms of the like he's kind of saying you're unworthy and then he's stripping away the, the signs of thor's office
2: thor and odin are having this generational dispute right where it's um Odin says, you're a vain, greedy, and cruel boy. And and Thor, you're an old man and a fool. Um, And then there's that key line, the old ways are done, right? So, we've got this tension between the old and the new, the the old and the young, again, a very King Lear-style dynamic. And then we get, you're a vain, greedy, and cruel boy. And I suppose, I don't know quite what to make of this, but vain, greedy, and cruel, if we sort of look at those specific words, they're, they're not necessarily the words that I would think about with with Thor, right? With, with someone who's been impetuous and, and trying to go out, but to be vain, greedy, and cruel. So, that's an interesting dynamic there. Um, he later calls him arrogant and, and stupid. You, you've opened these peaceful realms and innocent lives to the horror and desolation of war, um, and then we get to the kind of the, the you are unworthy moment, and and it's it's pretty wild that it's taken this film this long to get to this moment. I, I think it's was almost half an hour into the film before we get sort of the, yeah. the, the yeah. first plot point that sort of gives this story direction. That's a that's a pretty daring move to make for a filmmaker to wait that long into it to give us that moment.
1: Yeah. We've really kind of built up this whole thing with this first act. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I think this is that intense point where our hero, is kind of like uh, set on his path of learning, right? I mean, he's demoted in rank and banished. And I think it's it's interesting. Actually, uh Kenneth Branagh talks about he, how he was referencing the Dreyfus affair from the movie The Life of Emile Zola for this particular moment. And I I looked at that film to to kind of see what he was talking about, and I found it very interesting because I I wasn't familiar with the story of of Dreyfus, but he was a a leader in the French mm army who was uh, was accused of treason, even though he wasn't the one who had done it. And it, you find out that the military leaders knew, but they didn't want to get in trouble. So they fictionalized this whole thing to kind of create this drama about him getting demoted but the process of of being stripped of your ranks i mean it is a very militaristic ritualistic thing where i mean he's in front of everybody they come up to him and they rip off all of the the badges and the stripes and the little decorations on his outfit and then they have him walk the ranks as he has been stripped of all of his stuff and it's an interesting and i suppose perhaps shakespearean and maybe it's just you know regular screenwriting way that they put that together here in the fact that we don't have Odin bring Thor back to the palace to go through this ritualistic process of the demotion and, and banishment. It's very much an emotional demotion at this point, right? I mean, he kind of does it in this heat of this argument. He strips him of his ranks right here without going anywhere and then, and banishes him here. And I think that that's an interesting and probably stronger way to do it for for the story, and perhaps more Shakespearean.
2: Yeah, it's the the geography here is important, right? We're we're sort of at a threshold there at, at the the gate, right? Yeah, we're right. sort of between two worlds, and that is uh, very Shakespearean, not just in the the history plays, but you know, a play like A Midsummer Night's Dream, where you have the the city world and then mm. the woods of Athens, and different kind of you know metaphysics seem to apply in these two different places. But in this case in particular, we then get this new world of, of Earth that's kind of brought into this situation, which is where Thor is, is cast down to. And so now we have a very uh, clear dynamic from the, the first part of Henry IV. Um, but of course, uh, you know, Brando's kind of changing things around. So in, in Henry IV Part One, you have the court and you have the pub. And there are these two different worlds and we see different actors and, and different stories playing out in either of those. Whereas in Thor, you have Asgard, and you have Earth, and you still have the court, the royal place, but now the, the kind of the commoner's place is, is down here on Earth, and the fascinating thing about Thor is that it, it kind of flips the first part of Henry IV on its head, because Earth is where Thor goes for his education. It's where he goes in mm-hmm. order to have his development, and, and whereas in in uh, the Henry the Fourth plays. The pubs are, are sort of presented as what's keeping Prince Hal back, as as he needs to get outside that world. He needs to get uh-huh. into the noble, the royal world. So, so, so there's uh, some some interesting kind of uh, political valences going on there in terms of valorizing the things that you learn outside of court instead of the qualities and the values of the court.
0: Well, it makes a lot of sense too, because it's you know, so I think my my sense is especially like you said, the vain, greedy part of odin's sense is that the problem with thor is that he thinks he walks on water because everyone treats him like he walks on water because he's you know prince thor and and so it's this idea of like yeah you have to go live as a pauper instead of a prince you know and i'm totally bastardizing the the story but you know but that idea of yeah you've got to be sent out and i i as someone who makes beer myself i do kind of like the idea that earth is the pub of the asgardian world so that's also kind of a wonderful way to see it i mean they're (laughs) breaking mugs there
2: right (laughs)
0: You know? Yeah. Uh, The poor waiters and like janitors in Thor's world. He's breaking things all the time. Uh, And Loki helps too. Uh, One thing I just want to quick also mention, um, it's not relevant to this, but with the Dreyfus affair, wonderful historical moment, terrible historical moment, but great to know. And very relevant to that is that uh, Dreyfus was Jewish, which is a a lot about anti-Semitism in France at that time. Absolutely. Andy, though, I know you want to talk a little bit about the discs on Thor's armor, because they're definitely very significant in the way that they're ripped off.
1: Well, and those are treated very much like these rankings uh, right. you know especially as Odin is removing them that is kind of this reference to the Dreyfus affair where which is interesting because you look at the armor and you I don't know I guess I would have just assumed it was armor and I didn't realize that the way that these discs are are put onto these uniforms onto the their actual armor it is an actual ranking and so when Thor has his you know at, at this point it's just the top two discs on his six discs on the front front of his armor removed that is essentially like removing his rankings and so i i find that really interesting and now i'm going to be curious as we kind of continue going through the film to look at you know what what do the fronts of the armor of the unhariar guards look like the warriors 3 odin i mean i know odin has some of the discs on his we can see in this particular scene but i'm curious to see i don't i haven't found anything as far as like breaking down the Asgardian armor as for as to like what the different rankings mean. But I do think that's an interesting way that they actually incorporated the rankings into the design of the, the armor here.
2: Yeah. Odd, odd just sort of historical footnote and early modern England, there are what were called sumptuary laws, which were, if you existed in this class, you could wear these clothes, but if you were below this class, you could wear those clothes over there. And and that was obviously a theater presented a really big problem to that, right? Because you have, working actors who are dressing up like kings and queens and high royalty, even though the law said they shouldn't be wearing those clothes. And, and so, um, mm. you know, I, I don't even imagine how, how early modern England would have responded if someone was dressed as an Asgardian
0: God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, a great thing right. to think about. Well, uh, Jeff, so kind of wrapping up, is there any other last points about this minute you wanted to bring up that we haven't touched on yet?
2: I think we, we have to at least, uh, Cover in the first Avengers film, then when Thor shows up on Earth and uh, he, he gets into this debate with with Iron Man, Tony Stark, and, and Thor says to Iron Man, "You have no idea what you're dealing with." And Tony Stark says back, uh, "Shakespeare in the Park." <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he has the line, does mother know you're wearing her drapes?
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: So I, I think uh, the way that Joss Whedon sort of framed this was uh, Branagh did Marvel Comics as Shakespearean theater, and he got to satirize that in Avengers.
0: As a kid who grew up in New York City and went to see Shakespeare in the park quite a lot, because uh, back then you could see it for free pretty easily. Uh, I love that moment especially.
1: Actually, Jeff, before you before you go, um, I have a question for you. Since it is since it is Thursday when we're doing the show, first of all, happy Thursday to you. Yep. Um, what is uh, what's of all of the films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? What is your favorite Thor moment across all of them?
2: Probably gotta be at the start of near the beginning of Ragnarok, where Thor shows back up in, in Asgard, and they're doing a play within the film right and and i mean uh-huh, yeah. an extremely shakespearean moment of course um, but I think you get a, a Matt Damon cameo in there playing Loki right. and, and Sam Neil is over yeah, right right <laughs> exactly so uh, anytime you have artists who are showing within their art the creation of art you have people reflecting on the process of what it means to create art how we create art and theories of authorship theories of audience and, and that's fascinating for the, the many other virtues to, to recommend the third Thor film that is one really kind of mm-hmm. Complex moment.
1: Such a great one, too. Yeah.
0: Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. And I want to ask you a final question that I don't know if you get asked all the time or I'm completely putting you on the spot here, but if you could take any one Shakespeare play and cast it with MCU actors, what do you got? <laughs> uh, I would have to think about this a little bit. Um, Give us uh, the Scottish play. Like, who would you put in the, for the Scottish play? Or Macbeth, I mean, I'm an idiot. Well, so the, the, the
2: fascinating thing about this sort of overlap between. You know, the, the world of Shakespearean actors and superhero uh, comic films, is, as we mentioned, kind of, you have to be a, you have to be able to present highly implausible things in believable ways. And in the in one X-Men film, I think it's the Days of the Future Past one, where you've got different mm-hmm. ge- generations coming together. You've got four Macbeths yeah. in one X-Men film. <laughs> oh,
0: I love that. Yeah, okay. such a great think of it.
1: So what was that? Uh, Patrick Stewart? Right. Uh Fassbender and Ian McKellen and
2: uh James McAvoy, I think.
1: <laughs> okay. Four yeah. Macbeths
2: in one okay. film.
0: That's, oh, that's
1: great. <laughs> I love that. Well,
0: uh, Jeff, thanks for being a part of this. Uh, If people want to find you and kind of like uh, your writings or you're thinking about this or they just want to pester you more about getting you to cast a Shakespeare film, uh, where can they contact? Where can they find your your stuff online?
2: Yeah, always happy to to chat with folks. Um, So I'm on Twitter at Dr. Jeffrey Wilson.
0: Thank you so much for being a part of this. Andy, as always, thank you so much. This is, I mean, this is one of the episodes I was so excited about. I really hope we can get you back at some point because just there's so much of this that opens my mind up. And to all of our listeners, we'd love to hear what you have to think. You know, all the ways to contact us at the next reel. Thank you so much for being a part of this and have a nice day.
1: Thanks so much, gentlemen. Until next time, true believers.
0: Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is "One Last Ride" by Martin Puringer. Find the show at TrueStory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.